Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Welcome back to this week's edition of Raising the Bar, the legal talk radio show. My name is Asher Purvis, filling in for Colleen Quinn this morning. Raising the Bar, the legal radio talk show, is sponsored and produced by the law firm of Locke & Quinn and brings an exciting and varied array of legal topics to listeners throughout Central Virginia and especially in the greater Richmond area. Once per week, the one-hour interactive radio show features true life stories and cases, legal tips, practical and reliable advice, and information from experts and specialists. The show includes not just a variety of lawyers, but also doctors, social workers, mental health professionals, executive directors, life care planners, paralegals, and other professionals. The law touches nearly every aspect of daily life, and this show brings both humorous and entertaining stories, along with the helpful tips, including tips on access to the justice and legal services, something that not everyone can afford. And if you have any questions about this topic or another tangential topic, you can call into the show at 804-454-1366. My apologies. This show features a wide array of various topics of the law, including today's topic, which is family law. And again, that number is 804-454-1366. And today with us, we have Richard. Richard, what's your last name? Locke, L-O-C-K-E. That makes a lot of sense. Richard Locke of Locke and Quinn. And uh, Richard, tell me a little bit a little bit about how you uh, got into practicing law. Well, I went to Virginia Tech, go Hokies, graduated in 1984, and then went to University of Virginia Law School. And when I graduated from law school in 1987, I moved to the Richmond area and began working for a law firm downtown. In what area of law did you begin practicing? Well, when I first started practicing, I did a lot of commercial litigation, and one of the first cases I worked on was a divorce case in addition to the commercial litigation, and I, I really enjoyed the divorce work. So over time, my practice has gradually shifted to where that's probably 80% of what I do. You enjoyed the divorce work. Was that because of the challenge of it? Well, you know, you're getting, getting an opportunity to help people at a difficult time in their life, and I mm -hmm. really enjoy the... Uh, working with people on something that really matters to them and mm -hmm. you know it's not always about money a lot of times it's important things like you know where the children are going to live and I just like helping people and it seemed like that was a little bit better fit for me than the commercial litigation. I've once heard it told to me that death is more difficult than to, or divorce is more difficult than death. Would you say that's an accurate uh, statement? Well, I haven't died yet, so I can't really <laughs> compare them. But uh, it is it is a difficult process for most people, and um, it it can be made easier if uh, mm -hmm. people are cooperative and have good lawyers who help them try to facilitate a result. But it can also be and oftentimes is a very difficult and trying time for people. It's probably one of the most stressful times in most people's lives if they go through a divorce. All right. Well, uh, for the listeners out there, if you'd like to ask Richard Locke a question about divorce and family law, please don't hesitate to give us a call at 804-454-1366. Uh, in the meantime, I will uh, just ask you some questions just so we can get an idea on just the, the basic aspects of divorce law and, uh, and and just work into some more, more nuance and details things later in the show. So the first question I have is, can I get my spouse kicked out of the house? 
Well, the answer to that question is maybe. Um, it depends on why you want to get him kicked out of the house. Um, judges are usually very reluctant to kick a spouse out of a house if it's, if it's jointly owned unless there's either physical abuse going on in the home or if the person you want to get kicked out is committing adultery. Judges tend not to expect people to live with a spouse if they're cheating on them. So those are two examples of things where you can get a spouse kicked out of the house. But it generally won't happen if the parties um, just don't want to be married anymore and one person just wants the house. The courts don't think they're in the position of uh, giving a party a grounds for divorce by kicking somebody out. So they usually don't do it unless there's physical abuse or adultery. Okay, those are two good reasons. Do we have to go to court? Do you have to go to court to get divorced? Ultimately, if you want to get divorced, the court is, ha is going to have to enter a final divorce decree, so the court will be involved. But whether you have to actually go to court and have a hearing is going to depend on whether you and your spouse can reach an agreement on all the issues that have to be decided in order to get divorced, like how your property is going to be divided up and uh, whether or not one spouse is going to get spousal support or alimony. Those two words mean the same thing. And, you know, where the children are going to live and how much child support. So the parties can reach an agreement on all the issues, which is always the goal. Um, nobody ever has to actually go to court. Um, you send the paperwork in and the judge will review it and sign it. But um, I'd say probably 80 to 85 percent of my cases never go to court. Uh, we, we settled them. But 10, 15, maybe 20 percent at least have one hearing or multiple hearings to get it resolved. Okay, so I imagine since you say it doesn't have to go through the court uh, per se, but it does have to go through the legal process and, and be filed with the court system, is that an accurate understanding? Yeah, that's correct. So the circuit courts in Virginia are the courts that have the authority to grant divorces to parties. So if you, even if you and your spouse reach an agreement on how you're going to deal with all of the issues that have to be decided in a divorce, ultimately that paperwork is filed with the circuit court. The judge will review a final divorce decree and enter an order that grants you a divorce and makes you once again a single person. Okay. And I would imagine each party would need a lawyer uh, in, in either case. Well, that's, that's not necessarily true. I mean, there are a lot of situations where um, the parties reach an agreement and they will one lawyer will represent one party and do the paperwork to finalize a divorce. Um, obviously, every, everybody who's going through a divorce, if there's anything significant involved, ought to have a lawyer review an agreement before, before they sign. And I don't think that's just divorce. If you're, if, you're, if you're doing something important in your life and you're going to sign a legal contract and you're not a lawyer, you probably ought to have a lawyer take a look at it. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, what are the, uh, the grounds for divorce? Well, Virginia is one of those states that still recognize fault grounds for divorce. A lot of states have sort of gone away from that concept, and, you, you know, you can get divorced based on irreconcilable differences, and fault doesn't matter. But So in Virginia, there are two types of divorce. You can get divorced from your spouse after you've been separated for a year, which we call as a no-fault divorce. doesn't matter why you want to get divorced. If you've been separated for a year, you're entitled to get divorced. Um, that's called a no-fault divorce. If you don't have minor children um, and you have a signed agreement, you can actually do that with a six-month separation. So that's what we call the no-fault divorce. But Virginia also recognizes uh, a number of grounds for divorce 
which include adultery. If your spouse commits adultery and you can prove it, then you're entitled to get a divorce as soon as you can get in front of a court and put on the evidence. So that's one grounds. Another is um, desertion. If your spouse moves out of the house uh, without your permission or consent, that, that's a grounds for divorce in Virginia. If um, you're being physically abused by your spouse, that's a grounds for divorce. And sort of the final grounds for divorce, in addition to the physical abuse, the adultery and the desertion, is mental cruelty. Now, mental cruelty is probably the hardest one of those to prove because you have to establish that the mental abuse is so severe no person can withstand it. So it's more than the normal bickering that takes place when parties, uh, marriages tend to fall apart. I guess the best example I could give you is I represented a lady who had a, a, a fear of spiders. Her husband um, wanted her to leave the house, so he would find spiders and hide them in her clothing drawers and all over the house to essentially terrorize her. Um, and in that particular case, the judge found his abuse, his mental abuse, to be significant enough to grant a divorce on that basis. Is it harder to prove, uh, you, you, of course you're saying it's hard to prove, but uh, how, how difficult is it to prove mental cruelty when there's not a physical object involved? So in this case, the example you just gave me, he's actually moving you know, a physical object or, you know, a living creature into her wardrobe. So if it's just wholly psychological, how difficult is it to prove that type of abuse? You know, it's, it's pretty difficult. In that particular case, she had photos and videos of what he had done. Um, he ultimately admitted it. But for in Virginia, for every grounds of divorce, you have to have independent cooperation other than a party's testimony. So we had to have photographic evidence or videos and his admission. If a party admits the grounds for divorce, then you mm -hmm. only need slight cooperation. But if they don't, you, you know, you have to have pretty, you know, have to have pretty good evidence to prove it. But it's hard. I mean, you see very few divorces granted on mental cruelty. A lot, you know, adultery, desertion, physical abuse, you know, they're pretty easy to prove or easier to prove certainly than the mental abuse. When there's one, is there normally more? So if someone's, you know, mentally abusing someone, psychologically abusing someone, is there normally other issues that are you can latch on to? Yeah, yeah it's not unusual that you'll have multiple grounds for divorce. Okay. For example, a person may cheat on their spouse and then eventually just leave the home and mm -hmm. start living with their spouse. So you've got both adultery and desertion. And it's also not uncommon that you'll have a situation whenever someone's being physically abused, which unfortunately happens much more than than you would think. Um, there's also some element of mental abuse in that situation. And as you, you know, when you talk to, to people who do this kind of work, sometimes the mental abuse is just as bad as the as physical abuse. It's just a little harder to prove. Okay. Um, how do you prove adultery? Well, to prove adultery, you have to establish that the person has committed an act of adultery. You don't actually have to have photographic or video evidence of them in the act of adultery, but you have to establish that there's some physical or romantic relationship, which you can do by some public display of affection or cards or, you know, so a lot of times now social media has become a just a, uh, there's a plethora of evidence on social media when people are doing those kind of things. But a lot of times we'll also have private investigators. So Virginia basically you have to show some public display of affection combined with an opportunity for the parties to have consummated the act. So you can have a private investigator see the people out to dinner 
holding hands and kissing, and then they go back to one per person's house and spend the night, the lights go out, then that's proof of adultery in Virginia. But you can prove it a lot of different ways. I, I'll tell you one of the most interesting cases I ever had or was involved in on how someone discovered that their spouse had committed adultery. He was having his septic tank cleaned out, and he, you know, oddly enough, was standing there next to the guy cleaning out his septic tank, and he saw these items floating around in the top of the septic tank, and he asked the guy, what are those things floating around in the top of the septic tank? The guy told him they're condoms. Well, the husband turned a little red-faced, and the guy said, don't worry about that. Those things can last 100 years. <laughs> and, and he said, he said we built the house. Um, and, and so the guy was trying to calm him down a little bit and said, well, you know, maybe your children are sexually active. He said, we don't have any children. So that, in that particular case, this gentleman found out that his wife was cheating by seeing condoms floating in a septic tank. He, he went inside and argument ensued and ultimately there was a divorce. So there are lots of ways to find out your spouse is cheating. And that's probably the most interesting one I've ever seen. <laughs> there's always evidence, isn't there? There's always evidence. I mean, there's always a trail when, you know, social media has become a good tool in that area. It's unfortunately, it's been there are a lot of good things about social media, obviously, but it also has created an opportunity for people to connect with or reconnect with people. Um, you know, when people are going through a tough spot in their marriage, it's not uncommon that they'll turn to other folks to talk about it, and social media makes that easier, and the Internet generally makes it easier to find someone to, you know, to have an affair with, unfortunately. Hmm. Does it also make it easier to uh, find evidence on affairs? It does. Um, you sort of have to know what you're doing, but there are forensic, uh, a lot of folks out there who can help you, forensic people who will, you know, take someone's computer or cell phone and be able to retrieve data uh, that they may think has, has been deleted. You can subpoena information from, from different sources like Facebook or other places and find that out. But you can also, you know, a lot of times get that information from a person's own electronic device, their iPad or uh, their computer or, you know, their social media sites. I tell you another thing that had a case very recently where this gentleman was having an affair. He was up in his home gym working out, texting his uh, girlfriend on his cell phone and didn't realize that he had set up his iCloud sync thing so that his messages popped up on his iPad, which unfortunately happened to be for him, happened to be sitting <laughs> next to his wife. So she, she saw his his iMessages pop up to his girlfriend, and that's how she figured out her husband was cheating. I think I read in the news uh, about a woman who was on a plane, and she used her husband's thumbprint while he was asleep to unlock the phone and discovered an affair and that they had to ground the plane. Well, you know, uh, that, that, that would make somebody pretty angry, and I can see why there might be a fight on a plane. But, you know, you really have to be careful with how you retrieve electronic uh, evidence, and you ought to talk to a lawyer about mm. that before you do it because there are a lot of federal and state laws that prohibit you from intercepting or getting other people's electronic communications, which are both can be subject someone to both criminal prosecution and civil penalties. So you ought to talk to somebody who sort of knows that area of the law before you go digging in someone's phone. For example, that particular example you just gave me, mm -hmm. she accessed his electronic device without his permission or consent. That was probably a crime, but she found out what she needed to know, and I don't know whether she was prosecuted, but you really have to be careful in that area. How would the crime uh, affect the divorce proceedings, which I imagine would follow? 
Well, that's an interesting question because in the in the criminal arena, if you get evidence that is obtained illegally without a search warrant, for example, or something like that, it's inadmissible. Um, you know, it's it's what they call fruit of the poison tree, so you can't use it. There's no such um, prohibition in civil cases. So, if you get this information illegally and it's otherwise admissible, um, you can use it. Now, the problem is you may be able to use it and get divorced based on adultery, but you may be in jail or having to pay a big <laughs> civil penalty because you got the evidence that way. So, okay. again, it's, it's, it's admissible. If it's otherwise admissible, you can use it, um, but you, you may be subjecting yourself to other problems. Something else you said, you can subpoena uh, Facebook uh, records. Is it, so I, would a lawyer have to go through and, and ask Facebook for records, or and what would that involve? Would that involve uh, Messenger? Yeah, so you can send uh, Facebook or various websites that people may communicate on a, a subpoena requesting the detailed communications between parties. Some of those uh, entities keep it, and if they do, you can get it. A lot of times wow. you don't need to do that. You mm-hmm. can actually just request, uh, send a subpoena or a document request while the divorce case is pending to the other party um, and ask them to download from Facebook um, on a disk or a thumb drive you know, the information you need, and uh, you can get it that way. The, the, one of the problems with their legal system is it assumes people are going to be honest and that when you send them a request for documents or a, a download from a computer that they're actually going to do it. Um, and I think most of the time that happens, but it, definitely our discovery process in, includes some level of trust that may not always be uh, there. And you're trusting the person you're trying to accuse of adultery? Exactly. Okay. If you're sending them a request to get their Facebook information downloaded, you're trusting that they're going to do it. Um, and for the most part, they they will. They have to. The court has the authority to, to force people to do it. So I think generally you get the information you have or you need that way. Okay. Uh, does fault matter for property division? Yeah, fault um, is something the court can consider. It really has multiple. If you can prove fault, the court can consider fault in deciding how to divide up someone's marital property. Uh, they can consider fault and how um, whether or not to award spousal support, and if so, how much. And they can also consider fault and whether they're going to make one party pay for the attorney's fees of another party. So it is a factor. Generally speaking, though, in property division, unless the fault had some kind of economic impact on the marital estate, you know, like someone was spending lots of money on their girlfriend, the marital property is usually evenly divided. There are some exceptions, but generally evenly divided. It has more of an impact on uh, spousal support and attorney's fees. And in Virginia, if a spouse commits adultery, they are barred from getting spousal support, um, with an exception. The statute says if you can show by clear and convincing evidence that it would be manifestly unjust not to award spousal support, the court can still do it. But it's a very big hurdle. So if the recipient of spousal support commits adultery, they could be barred from getting spousal support. Wow. And that can make a big difference. I was involved in a case where this person had been married to a doctor for 30 years, had been a stay-at-home mom. He's making a million dollars a year, and she committed adultery. Um, and we had to try to convince the court that it would be manifestly unjust in that particular situation 
not to award spousal support. And when you do that, you, the court can look at the relative degrees of fault that took place. And in that particular case, uh, the, the doctor husband was not perfect, and he had um, done some things that arguably created the dissolution of the marriage just as much as her, her adultery. And we were able to convince the judge that it'd be manifestly unjust, and she got support. But it was, you know, it was no it required a lot of work, right? Exactly. Okay. Is properly always divided evenly between the spouses? Yeah, there's not. There's no presumption in Virginia that marital property would be evenly divided. And I guess in order to talk about that, you've got to talk about the three kinds of property that exist in Virginia. So you have marital property, which is basically property that the parties acquired during the marriage unless they got it by gift or inheritance. Separate property is anything either one of them owned before they got married or they got during the marriage by gift or inheritance. And sort of the third category is hybrid property. If they commingle those two types, for example, somebody had a house when they got married that had some equity in it, and they then roll that over into a house that they own together and pay off the mortgage. You've combined separate assets with marital, and you have to sort of figure out how to break those apart. But generally, you keep your separate property. Marital property is divided by the court. There's no presumption that it be even, but it generally is evenly divided. Uh, but the court can look at a number of different factors to decide whether to do something other than an even distribution. But you don't see that happen very often. It seems that people would have to be fairly intentional entering a marriage to keep their property separate because it seems that, like the, I'm not married personally, but it seems like they would naturally commingle over time. That, that is true. There are some examples where it doesn't happen, but generally when people you know, I tell people all the time, and it sort of brings you to the topic of prenups, but, you know, probably 99% of the people when they get married think that the marriage is going to last forever, but about half of those people are wrong, and it doesn't. So, But but generally when you get married, you, you commingle your assets. I mean, that's just sort of the natural way to do it. So, you know, if you're if you're thinking your marriage is not going to work, you can, uh, you can deal with that by keeping your assets separate. The other way people can deal with it is doing premarital or prenuptial agreements that sort of define how that's going to get figured out. And that's one way to do it. But you're right. It's it's not natural for people to keep things separate when they've decided they want to be together. Okay. Uh, we have about two minutes till the break. I'm going to try to squeeze in one more question before we, we go to the break. And again, I'll mention uh, the phone number here is 804-454-1366. You feel free to call in with your questions. Uh, next question is, am I entitled to any of my spouse's retirement assets? The answer to that question is yes. Um, in Virginia, the marital share of your spouse's retirement, in other words, that portion of his retirement that was created during the marriage is subject to division by the court. Now, you asked me earlier whether or not marital assets uh, are evenly divided, and I told you that the court doesn't have to do that. It could give one person 80% of the marital assets if they thought after looking at all the various factors that it was appropriate. However, in a retirement account, the statute limits the amount that a spouse can get of your qualified retirement account to 50%. So the maximum amount you can get is 50% of your spouse's marital retirement, uh, and that usually is what happens. All right, well, we'll be back with more Raising the Bar after this brief break. You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. 
Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. With SRN News, I'm Rich Thomason in Washington. If you're heading out for Thanksgiving, you have a lot of company. AAA expects close to 51 million Americans to travel at least 50 miles over the holiday. 28.5 million of those travelers are expected to fly to their destinations. A U.S. Navy transport plane has crashed in the ocean off Japan. Three people are missing. Eight others were rescued, and they're said to be in good condition. It happened during joint U.S.-Japan military exercises. North Korea lashing out at President Trump for putting it back on a terrorism watch list. Pyongyang calls it a serious provocation that justifies its development of nuclear weapons. Stock futures higher at the opening bell on Wall Street. The Dow futures up 42 points. S&P futures two and a half points higher. More details at srnnews.com. Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call SelectQuote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky-high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $25 a month. I'm SelectQuote agent Dan Savino. And believe me, if SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For your free quote, call 800-721-4880. That's 800-721-4880. 800-721-4880. Or go to SelectQuote.com. Since 1985, we shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at SelectQuote.com slash commercials. Your price could vary depending on your health issuing company and other factors. Not available in all states. At Green Plains, we understand your business needs and are committed to your success. As your partner, we're committed to the well-being of the people and communities we serve. And as the second largest ethanol producer in the world, with 17 facilities across the United States, our constant demand for corn means you get more for your bushels more often. Visit us online at www.gprenc.com corn to find out how Green Plains Hopewell can become the destination for your corn. That's why we are here on the show, because we don't want anybody in this world right now to have to settle for the situation they're in if they want more. There's no reason for it. Everyone has a great amount of power in their life to live the life that they want to live. Tune in to The Great People Show, live Thursdays 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. and Saturdays 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Here on Richmond's Choice for Inspirational Talk Radio, WNTW 820 a.m. and 97.7 FM. The Answer. Now, back to Raising the Bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. 
Welcome back to Raising the Bar, the RVA's legal talk show. I'm here with Richard Locke of Locke & Quinn Law Firms, the, the sponsor of this show. And we have been talking about divorce. We've talked about uh, quite a bit about it. And uh, we'll get back to uh, this conversation here. And I have another question for you, Richard. And that's, uh, if I inherited money during the marriage, uh, will my spouse get a share of those funds too? Well, Asher, the answer to that question is as long as you keep it separate and you can retrace it, no. So separate property, anything you inherit is separate property, uh, you're allowed to keep. Um, Where people fall into a problem in that category is they mix it with marital assets or otherwise do something that can be interpreted to give it to their spouse. And the most common mistake people make uh, on separate property is, let's say they get separate property and they buy a house with it. And then at some point for trust and estates reasons, they decide to jointly title the house. Now, if they do that correctly, the separate property would still be their property. But if they make the mistake of doing what's called a deed of gift, giving the, the, the spouse half the house, then they've lost their separate property. So you have to be careful, but generally as long as you keep it separate, it would be your separate property and your spouse wouldn't get any of it. So the general rule for just about everything here uh, is to keep it separate, no matter what it is. If it's if it's commingled, then it's it's evenly split generally, uh, and if it's separate, then it's it's yours. Well, if it's commingled, the person who has a separate property still can keep it, but they then have the burden to retrace and establish what portion of it was their separate property. And a lot of times, you know, that could happen early in a marriage, and the marriage lasts twenty years, and when they get divorced, they don't have the documentation to prove it. So, if you can prove it and retrace it, you can get your separate property back, but it becomes your burden. Okay, uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, this topic. I want to sw- switch to this. Uh, no, but we haven't spoken in detail about it, so I want to learn a little bit more about spousal support. Uh, how much will I get in spousal support after a divorce? Well, the General Assembly has adopted a statute that lists a variety of factors that the court has to consider in determining whether or not a spouse is going to get spousal support, and if so, how much. But the biggest factors really are what the differential is in the earning capacity of the parties, um, how long the parties have been married, and um, whether or not one person has stayed at home or given up their career Uh, to support the family, and really the standard of living that the parties had over the course of the marriage. The general rule is that a party in a divorce situation is entitled to continue to live at the standard of living that the parties enjoyed during the marriage, and to the extent the income of the other spouse can support that, then, then the court will order support that allows them to continue to live at that standard of living. There is no formula to set permanent spousal support. A lot of courts have adopted formulas for temporary support, which is the support that takes place while the divorce case is pending. So you really have two types of support, temporary support while the case is pending and permanent support. So there are usually formulas for temporary support, but permanent support, there is no formula. And that probably is the most difficult things divorce lawyers have to project is how much support is going to be because it varies. It's very subjective and it varies from judge to judge. And I could give you an example of how different that can be. I had a case one week in Henrico where the husband made about $350,000 of the year. The wife had been a stay-at-home mother but had gone back to work and was making about $40,000. They'd been married 20 years 
and the judge awarded spousal support of $12,500 a month. A few weeks later, I had a case in Chesterfield. Guy made $360,000 a year, another 20-year marriage with a wife staying at home who'd gone back to work making high 30s, so about basically exactly identical facts, and she got $4,500 a month. So you can get huge variations in spousal support awards depending on which judge you have. So it's hard to predict the outcome, and it's important that the lawyers in those cases know what judges' preferences are, and and it makes a big difference on which judge you have. I guess the next uh, question that logically follows is, can you pick your own judge? You know, a lot of people would like to do that, but <laughs> but you can. Um, courts assign the cases, in most cases, randomly. Um, every In some jurisdictions, like, for example, in the city of Richmond, some judges do the divorce work and some don't. Some focus on the criminal work, but in Henrico County and Chesterfield, Hanover, Goochland, the area that we, we primarily practice in, the, the cases are assigned randomly to the judges, so you, you don't get to pick your judge, and, and that's unfortunate in some cases, and it's good in some cases. Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit more about temporary support. What, what's, when would this be necessary? So when, when parties first separate and a divorce action has been filed, the court, well, there, there are two courts that actually can do spousal support. A circuit court can do it as part of a divorce case, and if the parties are separated, Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court has the authority to award spousal support. So during that period, after the parties have separated and before they're finally divorced, the court can set an amount that they think is appropriate for temporary spousal support. Um, and again, that's typically done by a formula, so a lot of times the lawyers are able to work that out because there's a lot less subjectivity in what the judge is going to do. And you know, usually we can work those numbers out. But that's just designed to allow both parties to survive during that separation period. Okay. Uh, for how long will I receive spousal support? Well, th- that depends. Um, but the answer generally is it depends on how long you've been married. Um, the court can award three types of spousal support. They can do a lump sum amount of spousal support, and that's it. They can award spousal support for what we call a defined duration, in other, wo- in other words, a certain number of years, and then the spousal support ends. Or they can award spousal support until someone dies or remarries. Um, and it really makes a big difference in what jurisdiction you're in. There are some jurisdictions who tend to do defined duration awards, and there are some jurisdictions who really rarely do defined duration awards. But there's no statute that says if you've been married 10 years, it's going to be permanent, or if it's less than that, it's going to be uh, a defined duration. But generally speaking, defined duration awards are designed for short-term marriages, five, six, seven years, and then you may get support for maybe half the length of time you've been married. But once parties have been married more than seven, eight, nine, ten years in most jurisdictions in the Richmond metropolitan area, the spousal support tends to be ordered until the the spouse dies or remarries. Okay. So you say the lump sum is generally for shorter marriage and the uh, seemingly indefinite one that only ends it when a major life change happens with the spouse is generally for longer marriage. Well, the, yeah. The, so the defined duration and the permanent award are monthly amounts. So okay. the defined duration is usually for short marriages. Lump sum awards tend to happen um, when one party has a lot of wealth um, and the court feels like they can they don't want to have these parties paying monthly spousal support to one another for the rest of their lives. So there's enough wealth involved. They can just give 
the one spouse a big hunk of money mm -hmm. in addition to her share of the marital estate, and then the parties uh, are ended. You really don't see a lot of lump sum awards. There are very few of those. It's generally either a defined duration award or it's a permanent award. Okay. And uh, another topic besides spousal support was very important and uh, probably one of the, the biggest hurdles in uh, divorce cases is custody. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, what kind of custody arrangement is normal? You know, it's it's hard to say there's a normal custody arrangement. When when I started doing this work 30 years, over 30 years ago, um, mothers typically got custody of the children and fathers would typically have them every other weekend and Wednesday night for dinner. Um, but that has changed significantly over the last 30 years, and it's really a result of, I think, two factors. The judges that are deciding the cases these days um, play different roles with their children and in their marital relationship than their parents probably did, and probably the fathers were generally more active than their fathers were. And um, the, the science behind that suggests that children tend to do better if both parents actively involved in their lives. So there's been a sort of a shift uh, to a more sharing of time with the children. So there are all kinds of arrangements. There are certainly situations where one parent will still get the children primarily and the other parent may have them every other weekend, but that happens with much less frequency than it did before. And what's much more common now is a situation where the parties will share time with the children. A lot of times that's an even sharing where the children spend one week with one parent and one week with the other. Or with younger children, they will do an arrangement where, for example, they spend Monday, Tuesday with mom, Wednesday, Thursday with dad, and they alternate the weekends. And the theory there is that for young kids, time their sense of time is not as great. So frequency is much more important. And as they get older, they have a lot more things going on in their lives transferring from one house to another in the middle of the week is problematic so you generally go to that alternating week arrangement so you see a lot more shared custody than you used to and uh, that's really the big trend i'd say that's happened in the 30 years since i've been doing this work is this something that's decided wholly by the judge or is this something that's more decided by the the two parties involved well it's um you know this is their the two hardest things to predict in a divorce case or whether or not there's going to be spousal support and how much, and what a judge is going to do on custody and visitation. And really the judges, if the parties can't agree, uh, the judge will make a decision on custody and visitation. But uh, as I've heard many judges say, you're, you're going to ask me to hear evidence for two, three, four hours and make a decision on what ought to happen with your children when the two of you have lived with them your entire lives, and nobody's in a better position to decide what's best for them than the parent. So judges encourage parties, and we encourage parties, to try to figure out what they think the best arrangement is for their children and work it out amongst themselves. And I would say probably 75, 80 percent of the cases, the parties, with help of lawyers or counselors, can work that out amongst themselves and come up with an arrangement that everybody agrees is best for the children. But when parties can't do that, the court will make a decision for them. Okay. And uh, will the kids have to go to court and testify? They don't have to go to court and testify. Um, they rarely go to court and testify. 
the statute allows the judge to talk to children in chambers um, if the court thinks that's appropriate, and that does occasionally happen. Because one of the things the court's supposed to consider is the reasonable preference of a child if he has a preference to live with one parent or another. But generally speaking, and I've heard a few judges say this, is the parent who calls the child to testify is likely going to lose the custody case. Because the last thing you want to do really in a case is put a child on a witness stand mm -hmm. in front of both of his parents and ask him to testify. So. Really, as lawyers, we try to do everything we possibly can to avoid that scenario. And if the child is have to gonna is going to have to convey something to the judge, we usually ask that it be done in the judge's chambers without the parties there. Okay. A question I have, does the grounds for divorce uh, have any bearing on the custody arrangement? It can. It depends on what the grounds for divorce is, and it also depends on which judge you have. Um, there are some judges... Um, who, uh, for lack of a better word, are more judgmental about adultery than others and who historically, if a person has committed adultery, is not likely to allow that person to have primary physical custody. That's really changed a lot in 30 years. It seems to matter less than it did 30 years ago. But generally speaking, if the fault grounds for divorce is having some type of impact on the children, then that can definitely be a factor. The parent is seeing someone else and it's an inappropriate relationship and they're focused on that and not on the children, then it can certainly be a factor. Or if the person has a major substance abuse problem, for example, and that was why the marriage ended and resulted in some kind of desertion or mm -hmm. some other problem, then the court you know, may or would certainly take that into consideration. If they're putting spiders in clothing. <laughs> if they put spiders in clothing and they've got children, that person's probably not going to get custody. Or, you know, physical abuse, for example, is a excellent example of where fault can make a difference because if you have a spouse who's physically abusive to a another spouse and the children have witnessed that behavior then that can be a factor i just had a case within the last week where uh, the father was alleged to have been and uh, physically abusive and to the parent oftentimes in the presence of the children and he, he ended up getting supervised visitation because of that and some other mental health problems. But, you know, uh, certainly physical abuse is a significant factor that the court has to consider because at the end of the day, everybody's trying to protect the children and make sure that they have the best opportunity for success that they can have. And you don't want them in a situation where they're going to be physically abused. Mm -hmm. This is going, uh, this is kind of a question about a trend that I've been hearing in the questions. It seems that a case it's as a lawyer it's it's almost it's as important to know the people involved in the case uh, it's equally as important to know the the judge who's going to be deciding the case into that that is that is really true so you know when when people are out there thinking about picking a lawyer they ought to a think about what jurisdiction their case is going to be in and whether you know the lawyer that I'm going to hire is familiar with that court system and knows the judges because they're definitely judges have their preferences. There are some judge, for example, some judges who really never do shared arrangements. They don't think it's appropriate. Um, that's sort of sort of the old school thinking, I, I call it. And then there are some judges who virtually always do shared arrangements. I recently had a case with a judge who virtually 
never does shared arrangements, who believes that the children should primarily be in one household. And I had a client who was insistent on getting a 50-50 shared arrangement. And no matter how many times I told him that that wasn't going to happen with this particular judge, he, he wouldn't accept that outcome. And we tried the case, and the judge gave primary custody to the mother, and he had him every other weekend. I knew that was going to be the outcome when I went in because I'd known this judge for 30 years, and that's what he typically does. So you sort of have to know the judge. You can tell your client, but a lot of times parents have their own opinion about what's best for the children, and they want their opportunity to put that on in front of a judge and have the judge decide, and they have that right. Hmm. So it's uh, knowing the law, knowing the case, and knowing the judge. They're all three very important things. Okay. Um, At what age can my children decide which parent they want to live with? Well, the answer to that question is when they're 18. Uh, When they're 18, they get to make that decision. Before that, their um, preference is a factor, one of 10 factors the court has to consider. What the statute says is the court's uh, required to consider the reasonable preference of a child if the child is of sufficient age and intelligence to express a preference. So what, what does that really mean? It really means the older they are, the more weight the judge will put on the child's preference. Um, the younger they are, uh, the less weight the judge is going to put on it. And that's another example of how it varies so much from judge to judge. I had a case one day in Hanover where this 13-year-old child said he didn't want to go see or visit his father. And the judge said, I'm not going to make this child go see his father if he doesn't want to. One week later, I had a case in Chesterfield, had this 16-year-old boy who was living with his mother who wanted to live with his father and kept running away to his father's house. And so I represented the father in that particular case, and we asked the judge to allow the son to live with him. And the judge said, he's 16 years old. He gets to make this decision when he's 18. He's going to continue to live with his mother. Uh, and wouldn't allow the father to have it. So in one case, a 13-year-old got to make the decision. In another case, a 16-year-old didn't get to make the decision. So it varies on the maturity of the child and the reason they express and which judge you have. I've never uh, known that what judge you get can hold so much weight in deciding your case. It really can. And and, uh, I guess one of the most interesting cases, I had a case where this 13-year-old boy wanted to live with his dad. We had a trial in the city of Richmond. Um, The mother was moving to Georgia, um, and the son said, I want to live with my dad. The judge and the mom had always had primary physical custody. The child was connected to Richmond, wanted to be with his dad, but the judge says, I'm going to send this child to Georgia to live with his mother. The father was disappointed. But when the son got down to Georgia, he realized that in Georgia, the law is that once you're 13, you get to make the decision. So the judge in Richmond sent the child to Georgia to live with his mother. The child got on the Internet, did some research, and found out in Georgia he got to make the decision. So six months later, he was back where he wanted to be with his dad. That's funny. So the judge enabled uh, the opposite decision to be made by sending him to the uh, to the mother. Yeah, none of us knew that, really, um, that the law in Georgia, I guess we should have tried to figure that out, but uh-huh. we were focused on, you know, air case. But uh, sometimes you, uh, you ask for one thing and you get a different outcome and you didn't know it was going to happen. Hmm. So how about, uh, and, and I like the fact that this is worded so kindly, can my spouse have uh, his or her paramour around the ch- child, um, children? 
the answer to that question also varies a lot depending on which judge you have, and that's also changed over time. Mm -hmm. um, 30 years ago when I started doing this work, it was very routine that courts would enter orders that the children could not be around someone's paramour or lover or whatever you want to call them. Um, that really has changed now. Occasionally you'll see orders that say that they can't spend the night overnight in the house with the parent. Um, with the with the paramour, but uh, it's it depends unless you've got some. But generally, unless you've got some evidence that the paramour is doing something uh, to or in front of the children that's inappropriate, once the parties separate, it's just natural that they're going to start seeing somebody else, and at at uh, at some point the children are going to be involved in that relationship. But I would just caution people, um, and I've heard judges say this, and child psychologists don't rush to expose your child to your new girlfriend or boyfriend. You may be excited about that person, but I can pretty much guarantee you your child <laughs> is not. Um, he wants his mom and dad back together. Mm -hmm. That may not happen, but it's going to take him a while to accept that. So give the child an opportunity to adjust to the divorce process before you start exposing the children to your new girlfriend or boyfriend. Does the, the court ruling change if that lover was uh, – was the cause of the divorce? It, it, it very well may. Um, there are certainly some judges who would, 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 would think that's an important factor to consider, and if they were the cause of the dissolution of the marriage, it may be more likely that the court's going to prohibit contact, at least for some period of time. Um, you know, I always encourage people, if we're doing something by an agreement, to put a provision in there that says, you know, for six months or uh, one year, the children aren't going to be exposed to anybody with whom you're romantically involved, and before they are, that maybe the other spouse gets an opportunity to, to meet them. But you also have to recognize when people are getting divorced, they're going to start seeing somebody else. And before they make a long-term commitment with that person, they want to make sure that their children are going to get along with that person or that that person is going to like their children. So at some point, you have to expose them before you make the next commitment to the next person. Hmm. So can I move out of the state with my children? Uh, generally, the answer to that question is going to be no, uh, but it's going to depend on a lot of factors. In order to relocate with the child, not just out of the state, but out of the area, the person who wants to relocate is required to prove that that relocation would be in the child's best interest. In other words, they have to establish that it's it may be good for the parent. They may have a better job. They may have married somebody who's in the military or got restationed somewhere else. But that's not a justification to move the child. So it's going to depend on what type of contact the non-relocating parent has with the children. If they regularly see the children, uh, have a good relationship with them, you've got to establish that that relationship is going to be able to meet, be maintained if you relocate. So I'd say generally there's a presumption against relocation, and it's a pretty tough burden to establish that you ought to be able to move a child away from one parent to another jurisdiction, mm -hmm. and it, do, it doesn't get approved very often. Okay, and we're about out of time. There's one question I was hoping to get to, and if I think my spouse has substance abuse or mental health issues, can a judge limit his or her contact with the child? Absolutely. The court has the authority to protect the children, and the statute gives the court the authority to order substance abuse or mental health evaluations to determine exactly to what extent a person has a mental health problem and what impact that would have on the children or substance abuse problem. 
you know, a lot of times I'll have someone come in and say, hey, look, my spouse is depressed and they're taking antidepressants. You know, can I keep the children away from them? I'd say, well, you know, probably not because, you know, it's not unusual at all in a divorce situation that there's some depression involved and there's some anti-anxiety or anti-depression medication. So just being having some situational depression isn't going to do it. But if you have a psychological problem that adversely affects your ability to care for a child, it's definitely something the court should and would consider. Okay. And let's say that there is a psychological problem, a mental health issue, but it's medicated. Does that, is that a factor as well? You know, it's going to depend on the condition and the effectiveness of the medication. Okay. Um, so if, I mean, I've definitely had, very recently had a case where a person had a mental health issue, and the evidence was that if they took their medication, it was controlled and didn't have any adverse effect on the children. So the court entered an order that said the parent could have visitation as long as they continued to see their uh, psycho- their counselor and their psychiatrist and took the medication as prescribed. So if the medication can make a person uh, well or the symptoms alleviated to the point where they can care for the children, it really shouldn't be a factor. And if you have a suspicion but it's not confirmed, there's never been a diagnosis, uh, what's the process to get the your your former spouse tested for this? There are two statutes in Virginia that allow that. That's one in the divorce statute in particular that allows the court to order an independent psychological evaluation of both parties uh, so that they can determine whether there are any mental health deficits and whether they would impact the children. Um, And there's another statute that allows any individual party when the mental health of another party or a medical condition is an issue to ask the court to allow them to hire an expert to evaluate that person. So you have two options to do it. The court has the authority to do it. And if you can give them some reasonable basis to do it, the judges will generally order those type of evaluations. All right. Well, Richard, I appreciate you joining us today. And again, this has been a uh, Raising the Bar talk show with Richard Locke of Locke and Quinn Law Firms, who are the sponsors of this show. I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you again next week. And thank you so much, Richard, for being here and answering these questions. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. You too.